Hey, welcome back, travelers. This is your host, Miles Biggs, and the show is Relish the Journey. And what's really, really cool about this episode is, you know, I lovingly say travelers to refer to you group of listeners, but I've got an actual traveler here as a guest on this episode. His name is Jonasen Goldson. He's a rabbi, and when he graduated college, he took his English degree in a backpack across America, backpacked, hitchhiked across the United States, um, then went to Europe and backpacked across Europe, found himself in um, a rabbinical school in Israel, lived there for nine years, came back, taught, now he's a professional speaker, does TEDx talks, has books, just very, very fascinating individual, some really fun stories in this episode. I was super excited when he reached out via email, said that he found the show and wanted to be on to share his journey. And so I hope you all buckle up and listen intently because there are a lot of really great pieces of wisdom from all of his travels in this episode for you. So I hope you enjoy. And here is Jonasen Goldson. So Jonasen, thank you so much for joining me this evening. I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation. I'm looking forward to it, Miles. Thanks for having me with you. Yeah, absolutely. So for people who do not know who Jonasen Goldson is, um, tell us a little about yourself. I mean, what... What brings you to the podcast world? <laughs> oh, these open-ended questions. What are we going to do? <laughs> Gets it started. Uh, um, well, I, uh, I've had a long and interesting journey, and uh, I like to think I've learned a few things along the way. And um, you know, sometimes just when we, uh, when we look back, uh, especially when it's over decades, uh, we can find that there are certain points of um, unexpected uh, transition, uh, surprises along the way. Uh, if, I, if you would have asked me 40 years ago would I end up where I am now, I, I never would have imagined such a thing was possible. Um, and uh, I guess to give you the, the broad strokes, uh, I graduated from the University of California with a degree in English. And what does one do with a degree in English? I don't necessarily recommend you do what I did, but I went hitchhiking across the United States. And uh, then I crossed the Atlantic, went backpacking across Europe. I ended up in Israel. And through an unlikely series of events, I found myself in a rabbinic college where I reconnected with the traditions of my heritage, uh, of which I knew virtually nothing when I got there. Uh, stayed in Israel for nine years, met my wife, had my first two children, became a rabbi, uh, eventually left to start a career teaching uh, high school in Jewish studies, taught for a year in Budapest, Hungary, taught for two years in Atlanta, Georgia, taught for 20 years here in St. Louis. And um, a couple of years ago, my, my school closed. And so I had to decide what I really wanted to do when I grew up. And now I've become a uh, professional speaker, trying to bring uh, more profound and appreciative awareness of ethics to the professional world. I feel like in those two minutes, there's probably half a dozen individual podcast episodes <laughs> that we could really get <laughs> Yeah, into. we could go a lot of ways from there. I'm glad you went into that overview because I wanted people to hear from you, not from me. But you know, before we spoke today, I pulled up the original email you sent me. And I remember reading it saying to myself, holy crap, like one person can do all of these things. It was, it's very impressive. So if we back up, well, good. No, I was just going to say, I, I um, remember when I applied for my first job in America and um, I, I, I sort of bumped into the uh, the principal at a convention that I sent out a letter of introduction to you. He said, your, your resume reads like an adventure novel. <laughs> yeah, so, it really uh, does. Yeah, it's a, it's a good thing. It gets people's attention. Sure. It's a great speaker bio too. <laughs> you know, we just rattle off. Uh -huh. People are going to be perked up when you take the stage. Yeah. But so if we back up to, you know, where that 
that bio sort of began. You said after you graduated the University of California, what made you decide to take that English degree, put it in a backpack and, and travel? <laughs> well, it's sort of funny when you're when you're in the midst of making these decisions, they look quite different from how they look in hindsight. Uh, I, I grew up in a very comfortable middle-class home. Uh, we weren't rich. We weren't poor. We were comfortable. I never really had to worry about anything. Um, I went to a very nice university. Uh, and, and as I was getting towards the end of my university career, and I realized that English just was not a marketable degree, I didn't really want to go. If I was going to teach, I wanted to teach on a university level, and that would have required many more years of education. It occurred to me that I may have plenty of book smarts, but I really didn't have much in the way of street smarts. Uh, I really didn't know much about the world, and I didn't know much about handling myself. And life was a big mystery. And the one thing that I've always felt, I don't know whether this is something that we, is just part of our nature, but I always wanted to do something that made a difference in the world. Um, my father was a successful businessman. I could have gone into his construction business. My grandfather had a law firm I could have gone into. And somehow I just felt that that wasn't going to do it for me. I needed to have a deeper understanding of what my purpose in life was. And the most immediate way I could think of to achieve that was to really put myself in a situation that would force me to be extremely uncomfortable. Um, I'm also a bit of an introvert. So, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable, you know, curling up with a good book uh, or, or having uh, you know, coffee or drinks with, with a friend or two. But this was something where I knew I was just going to have to challenge myself. I was going to have to force myself into a situation of dealing with the unexpected day after day. And so this idea just sort of coalesced in my mind over the course of uh, several months during my senior year. Uh, of course, then the, then the hard part was, how do you break this to your parents that you've got this <laughs> wacky idea? Sure. Uh, they were not thrilled. My mother said to me, uh, when she finally got used to the idea I was going to do it, she said, can you just please take a train to the, the beginning of your trip? I don't want to hear that you were murdered two miles from home. <laughs> Gosh, yeah. I was never sure why it would be better to be mur murdered 2,000 miles from home, but uh, be that as it may, <laughs> um, I took a train <laughs> from uh, Palm Springs, California to Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I didn't get a seat on the train. It was filled with Japanese high school students on the way to the Grand Canyon. So I had to sleep in the dining car, which might have been comfortable for dining, but wasn't very comfortable for sleeping. And I didn't sleep much. And when I got off the train in Albuquerque the next afternoon, I was tired. I was cranky. I just wanted to go to the lo local youth hostel and uh, you know, find a comfortable bed and some pleasant company. So I marched. I followed the directions of my youth hostel guys. might have been about eight blocks until I got to the address. And there is not a youth hostel, but a donut shop. Oh, man. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, so I went clear across the other side of town. I found the campground of America. And I pitched my little pup tent surrounded by RVs and Winnebago's and aluminum campers. And uh, it was, I hadn't slept the night before. It was early, but I figured I'd get a good night's sleep, uh, get rest, wake up first, first thing in the morning, start my adventure. And it was a beautiful, clear night. The air was absolutely still. And I lay down in my sleeping bag, and I finally drifted off to sleep. And, and then suddenly I woke up with a start. The, the wind had kicked up to gale force. And because the air had been so calm when I'd gone to sleep, I'd neglected to stake out the corners of my tent, which was now threatening to buckle in the wind. So I had to get out of my sleeping bag, get dressed, climb out into the cold night air, stake out the tent, come back inside, get undressed, get back in my sleeping bag. I looked at my watch. It's 930 at night. I went proceeded to be a very long, uncomfortable, yeah. unpleasant night. And when the sun came up the next morning, I was not filled with the spirit of adventure and the thrill of the open road. I was, I was, I just wanted to go home. <laughs> so I gave up this whole wacky idea and uh, I go home. And that's it. And I was, I was, I, I might have 
but there were two things that stopped me. One was I had told everybody I knew what I was doing. So the thought of sort of crawling home with my tail between my legs uh, and admitting I'd given up after one day, I couldn't imagine anything that could happen to me on the road that would be worse than that humiliation. But also there was this sense that I really was standing at a crossroads and that this is why I came to confront these types of situations and to find the conviction to follow through on what I said for myself, no matter how uncomfortable it would be. And, uh, and I pulled myself together and, uh, and hit the road. That's a, what I love about that story is that really could be a metaphor for any life situation, right? You know, the, the pup tent where you think one thing's happening and so you take one course of action and you wake up to the gale force winds, you know, whatever those winds mean to you, right? And you didn't plan for them, so the corners weren't staked down and you have to adjust and either keep pushing forward that next day or you pack it up and go home, like you said. So I'm sure that whole sort of theme carried through the entire backpacking trip for you. Uh, well, yeah, to a, to a certain extent. And you, know, you mentioned the wind in particular. I, I don't, I'm not a sailor, but uh, I remember learning at some point that um, when a sailor wants to go into the wind, that he, he, he can't go directly into the wind. He cuts back and forth by adjusting a sail. And that a sailboat can actually go faster cutting into the wind than it can go with the wind to his back. Hmm. Uh, and so your, your, your wind metaphor, I think, really uh, has, has a lot to it. Because when we when we do lower our shoulders and, and, and force our way into the wind, so we don't realize how strong we become by battling those headwinds and, and persevering. And at some point, things start to feel easier. And it's not necessarily because the wind let up. It's because we've become more capable to the point where we are not uh, we're not overwhelmed by the forces that stand against us. Right. Yeah, I love that. Speaking of sailing. <laughs> jump around a story because I saw it on your website and it had me intrigued. It mentions on your website that you did sail, but in a vessel that oh. <laughs> was seized by the Coast Guard. So was that you got this vessel after it was seized by the Coast Guard or you were you were uh, yeah, sailing yeah, yeah. and yeah. ran into the Coast Guard? Uh, yeah, no, I was, not, I was not in the Coast Guard. Um, so what had happened, I was, um, when, when I set out that first morning, I thought, you know, if I could just have somebody familiar, see a familiar face, it would make it so much easier. So I had a friend who lived in, in Boulder, Colorado, and I was in New Mexico. So I hitchhiked up to Denver, uh, made my way into Boulder, and hung out with my friend there for a week. And I figured I just, it was November, so I figured I had just enough time to get in and out before the, before the storm set in, the cold weather set in. I miscalculated by one day. So I ended up hitchhiking out of Denver in the snow. And you would think that drivers would have more sympathy on you for you if, you if you're if you're in the wind or the, in the snow or the rain it doesn't actually work that way uh they don't want to get the in car inside of their cars wet <laughs> okay so it's actually much harder <laughs> to, to get a, a ride in bad weather i was there for three hours before i got picked up by a yugoslavian seventh day adventist um who uh who loved to talk and he he talked all the way from um from denver until we were almost to santa fe uh where because he was talking so much he ran us out of gas on the side of the road um <laughs> But at that point, I decided I'm just going to keep going south and try and, and, and sort of racing this weather system. And I didn't really stop until I got to Key West, southernmost point in the United yeah. States. Wow. Uh, and that's where I was going to hang out for the, for the winter until things started to warm up again. But Key West is a great place for, place for transients. It's easy to find work. But you know, I had this Jack Kerouac vision of you know, being on the road and, and self-discovery and search for truth type of thing. And, and to go take a job that behind the counter at Burger King didn't quite fit into that persona. <laughs> sure. So I was uh, sitting at a bus stop 
and I was talking to a guy sitting there with me, and he said that he'd just gotten off a, a shrimp boat after working for two weeks. He said, so you go out for a couple of weeks, you make a lot of money, you come back. I said, how do you get a job like that? He said, well, it's easy, just ask around. There are always boats going in and coming out. So I said, okay. So uh, I started asking around, and everybody I asked told me exactly the same thing. Yeah, ask around, it's easy. The more I, I asked around, the more people told me to ask around. So I finally got fed up. I'm just going to go down to the water line and ask every single person I see until at least I get a different answer. So I headed out in the morning. The first person I come across is a middle-aged man wearing a windbreaker, fiddling with some sort of nautical device. And I said, excuse me, I'm looking to get a job on a boat. Can you suggest how I might go about doing that? He just looked at me, didn't say a word, turned his back, walked over to the nearest boat, and he shouted inside and said, Joe, I hear from the boat. Yeah. He said, you going out tomorrow? Yeah. You still need a guy? Yeah. I got a guy for you. Good. <laughs> That's awesome. He comes back to me, he says, can you swim? <laughs> I said, yeah. And I don't get seasick. He said, that's it. Come back tomorrow morning. So I didn't I didn't know what I was going to do. Didn't know how long I was going for. Didn't matter. I had a job. So what was the job? So this guy that I bumped into, he has a contract with the Coast Guard. Key West is one of the most popular ports of entry for you know, contraband, mostly drugs. And the Coast Guard knows this. So they apprehend a lot of boats and uh, find a lot of drugs. And then they seize the boat, which they hold until trial. If you're acquitted, you get your boat back. If you're found guilty, your boat gets sold at public auction. In the meantime, they have to store those boats in the customs docks, which are in northern Florida. So the guy I found has contracted with the Coast Guard to transport the boats that have been seized for drug trafficking up the coast of Florida to, uh, to Green Coast Springs to where the customs docks are. So the way they did it is they had three sailors in one boat towing a second boat. And they have two pair. They have a, a two sets of these things. Well, they need somebody to ride in the in the second boat, the one that's being towed. So that was my job was to ride in the second boat, the one being towed. Now I can't overstate the importance of my job. My job was that in some, if for some reason the boat I was on would start to sink, my job was to cut the rope, <laughs> and just so that my boat wouldn't pull down yeah. the other boat with it, and then swim to the other boat. Right? That's why they asked. Right. Exactly. Right. So. Uh, so for that, I got paid $45 a day plus, uh, which in, when was it, 1983, uh, was pretty good for me. I was living on 10 bucks a day. And, um, you know, and I had a play, I got to sleep on the boat and got food. And I, we went up the coast. I just sort of laid back and got a tan. And uh, that was that. Very nice. So then he said, you want to go again? I said, sure. So the first time they gave me this sort of ratty motorboat. The second time they gave me a quarter of a million dollar racing or luxury yacht. That's cool. So this time, well, we go sailing up. Very nice. But we got uh, we got caught in the fog. We got there a little bit late. And I didn't catch the truck that was going to take me back to Key West. So the boss said, well, I'll send you back in a Greyhound. And then he thought for a minute. He said, well, hang on a second. He called up a travel agent. Found it would be the same price to fly me back as to send me by Greyhound. So I said, yeah, why should you spend all day on a bus? Put you on a plane. So I got on one of these little commuter planes that, you know, it holds like seven, seven or nine people. Yeah. Except there's only one, there's only one other passenger on the plane. So we're taxiing off and I'm thinking, you know, I, I just spent a week going up the coast in a, in a luxury yacht. And now I'm flying back and practically my own, my own private plane. But, you know, maybe this English degree worked out pretty well after all. <laughs> That's funny. So yeah. And you mentioned living on $10 a day. So what was, what was that like? Was that mainly food or was that food and lodging? At ten bucks. Well, you know, a lot of Americans don't realize that youth hostels are not just something that exists in Europe. Uh, they have them in America too. And at the time when I was um, when I was doing this, 
a typical youth hostel would cost anywhere from three to ten dollars a night. So you know, I could live very inexpensively on uh, you know whatever it was fruit or crackers or, or, or that type of stuff. And I didn't have those, so those were those were my only expenses. And the, and the nice thing about it was that when I would come to a youth hostel, very often it would be a very international crowd because the Europeans they know about youth hostels. And that's where they want to live because they want to travel cheap. So you can have English and French and Australians and Germans and, and uh, you name it. And when I was living in uh, Key West, it was a, a whole long-term crowd. It really, uh, we had a great time. But it was a whole different experience on one that could be really, it could really live on it for very, very, uh, very low budget. Right. So is that what made you then jump over the Atlantic to Europe, you know, encountering Europeans in these hostels and just started getting curious about, you know, what it's like over there versus America? Well, it was kind of, kind of funny. I, um, I was in Key West and I decided that I thought I'd already been doing this for a couple of months. I said, you know, I think it's time to grow up, get my act together, get serious about life. And so I called my mother and I told her, uh, you know, I'm going to finish this trip, take a couple of more months, go up the East Coast. And, and then I think I'm going to figure out what I want to do next, maybe go to graduate school. And of course, she was thrilled. So um, the next time I talked to her, she said, uh, well, you know, there's something, I was so happy to hear you're coming back. I wanted to, wanted to do something for you. And this, this letter came in the mail about a program at the University of London for a summer, a summer semester. Would you like to go? And I said, no, not particularly. I've had enough travel. I just want to get settled and, and get on with my life. She said, think about it. I said, okay, I'll think about it. The next time I talked to her, she said, uh, do you think any more about that, that program in London? I said, not really. I'm not interested. She said, well, I signed you up anyway. <laughs> That's great. I said, well, thanks, but I'm still not interested. She said, think about it. Okay. Well, I thought about it. And I said, okay, you know, not such a bad thing. Go to London, transition from traveling. But by the time I got to London, I decided it's such a shame to be over on the other side of Atlantic and not see some of it. So I think uh, I think my mother regretted for many years that uh, <laughs> she had made me that offer. And my plan really it just kept expanding. I wanted to see Europe. I wanted to see uh, Asia. I wanted to see Africa. I want, everybody wants to go visit Australia. So I had this sort of open-ended trip stretching off into the future. And it started off pretty much the way I planned. I spent about half a year traveling through Europe. And then I reached a point where I just I just hit absolute overload. There's a, there's a new uh, term I was introduced to re recently called decision fatigue. Uh, it's, uh, it explains why people do really stupid things sometimes, because when we have to make lots of decisions, eventually we reach the point where we just can't cope anymore. Right. I remember standing on a street corner in Vienna, and I just couldn't make up my mind which way to go. And it didn't matter because I was just walking through the city. I didn't have a destination. And I literally stood there, must could have been five minutes or more, just trying to figure out which way to go. I said, this is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So I decided I'd go to Israel because I knew that in Israel, you could volunteer in a kibbutz, a collective farm. And um, yeah, you pick oranges or grapefruits or something, and it's physical work. And you don't have to make any real hard choices about life. And you just recharge my, my emotional batteries and they don't pay you, but it doesn't cost anything. And in a month or two, I'd be ready to go on with my travels. That was the plan. So I went to Israel. I got there. I went into the kibbutz placement office in Tel Aviv. And there are people in sleeping bags camping out and signs up saying, no places for volunteers. Come back next year. Next year. Wow. And I, next year. I mean, you know, I mean, it was November, but still. <laughs> and you know, nobody had ever heard of such a thing. 
that you couldn't volunteer, you couldn't find a place to volunteer. Well, what had happened is the dollar was at an all-time high that year. And there were eight or nine million Americans in Europe. And when it got cold in Europe, a lot of them just went south and ended up in Israel. And they all had the same idea. And so by the time I got there, it just it wasn't happening. So I had heard sometime before, which is another part of the story, which we may or may not get to. In Israel, they have uh, what are called yeshivas. They're rabbinic uh, colleges. They're seminaries. And uh, they're for Jews who've grown up primarily without uh, any knowledge of their background to, uh, to get caught up. And you know, that was me. You know, I lived in a very secular home, and we knew we were Jewish, but we didn't, uh, we didn't really do anything. And so I went looking for one of these places, and I found it. And I didn't have any expectation that it was going to change my life dramatically, but I was quite surprised at what I found there. It wasn't just sort of rituals and, and ancient superstition. It was a, a tremendously sophisticated intellectual discipline. And the more I studied and the more I argued with the rabbis, um, the more I came to recognize that this was really the way that I should be spending my life. And uh, it, wasn't a, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a transition I made easily because I'd been to college, I'd been around the world, I'd been, I was 24 years old, I knew everything, I had life all figured <laughs> out. Uh, but sort of uh, kicking and screaming, um, I was dragged into this realization that, uh, nope, this is, this is really the way you should be living your life. And I ended up staying in Israel for nine years, uh, became a rabbi, um, changed my whole life, got married, had children, and uh, really set the course of uh, my career and framed my my worldview in a way that now I can use those those theological principles and apply them in a professional setting and translate them into ethics that are not ostensibly religious, but guide us in a way that that makes the workplace function better and ultimately uh, makes our society uh, operate better. Yeah, so let's let's jump to that because I just saw you just recently did a TEDx talk about what, everything you just rattled off there. And what was the genesis that really made you think, "Hey, I can take you know, the theological principles and your life experiences, and then take that into the boardroom, you know, as it were, and talk to professionals about this?" Well, part of what I've done as a teacher, and and this is this is both in high school but also with um, adult education, is articulating religious ideas in a way that's um, palatable. To people who are not necessarily coming from religious backgrounds. So, you know, if if we if we're going to have a conversation about anything, whether it's politics or or social values or religion, whatever it is, the first thing we have to do is establish our common beliefs. Right? Is if if I believe that there's a God who revealed His Word into the world and you don't, then we're not going to have a, a valuable conversation because we're coming from two completely different starting points. So what I developed was a style and a presentation form of taking these ultimately religious ideas and translating them into a secular form of presentation, not coming at it from a religious point of view per se, but coming at it from a rationalistic point of view. Let's look at values. Let's see how values affect society. Let's talk about what's in our best interest as human beings. Let's talk about what makes us happy and, and what defines success. And as I did more and more of that in the classroom and in, in the context of Jewish education, I, I came to realize that uh, this is something that really has applications way beyond the Jewish community. 
Um, I was uh, a columnist for a while for the, the local paper here in St. Louis. Uh, again, writing about education, writing about politics, writing about society, civility, morals, values, ethics. And, uh, and I got a very good response from people who either liked the idea that I was articulating values that they had long believed in, that they felt were disappearing for the world, or from people who said that I got them to think in, in a different way and got them to entertain ideas that they really hadn't taken seriously before. And, you know, that, that's something I take tremendous uh, pleasure in doing. In fact, in my, in my TED Talk, I, I get up on the stage and I look like a rabbi. And I look at, I have a very stern expression on my face and I look at the audience and I pause for a moment and I say, I am a religious fundamentalist and it's dead silence. <laughs> and then I, then I break into a big smile and I say, I know that's a dangerous way to start a talk. And, you know, the whole, the whole audience uh, cracked up, uh, which is what I hoped would happen because this is what we do. We, we indulge our stereotypes. We think we know who people are because the way they look and the way we categorize them or the assumptions we make about them. And, and when those stereotypes are broken, that's an opportunity for us to start to look deeper into people, to get to know people and start seeing past those labels so that we can actually start communicating and creating relationships with each other. Yeah. So in what ways do you think you break the stereotypes of a rabbi? Well, as soon as I start talking about going hitchhiking, that usually... Uh, <laughs> Fair point. Yeah. <laughs> that usually gets people's attention. Um, you know, people, you know, there, there's, uh, I, I don't remember what movie it was, but uh, in one of Woody Allen's movies, uh, he goes to meet uh, the parents of his of his non-Jewish girlfriend. And, um, you know, you could, in the movie, he, he imagines how they are looking at him. And then in the camera, you suddenly see him dressed up as a Hasidic Jew in a, you know, with the side locks and the big hat, and the beard and the, and, the, and the long black coat. Sometimes we see ourselves through other people's eyes. And so we feel we have to play the part. Other times we just have our preconceptions. And as soon as we actually start to talk to each other, and find common ground and discover that, that we do have common interests, common reference points. That's how we start creating relationships. And, uh, you know, today it's, it's uh, you know, this is, this is not something that you haven't heard before or your, your audience hasn't heard before, but we're all so frustrated with the state of politics today. Um, like we have these two opposing camps, each one brands the other as evil. If you don't see the, the political landscape my way, you're leading the country to destruction. And um, and so we just keep attacking each other and we keep calling each other names and we refuse to work with each other because like, how can I compromise with somebody who's evil and you don't see the world my way, so you must be evil. Um, this is not the way a healthy society functions. And if we actually take the time to suspend our preconceptions, and to listen and hear to what people are saying, we can discover that, okay, we may disagree, but this person may be coming from a point of intellectual clarity, may be coming from a, a point of sincerity, may be coming from a place of morality. And that at least if I'm not vilifying everyone who disagrees with me, at least that's the beginning of creating the relationships that, that enable us to potentially work together and solve our problems instead of just stirring the pot. Right. And I've, I certainly see some of that as I talk to such a broad variety of people with the show that you do start to see if you peel back either the way people see themselves or the way they think people see them and you get down to the core of a conversation that most people can find at least one thing in common with, with one another as long as they let themselves 
do it. You know, let their guards down, open themselves up to some new ideas, and then get to that point that they have that something in common and can build off of. It's just all too often we don't let yeah. our, we don't let our our guard down. Like you said, you focus on the one thing that you disagree on instead of the one thing you could be agreeing on. Absolutely, and you know that's why what what you're doing with with your podcast and there's so many of these uh, podcasts out there that offer the opportunity to do just that. Just have more civil, thoughtful conversations instead of just sitting together with people we already agree with and, and echoing one another. And, and that's what, what falls in this kind of group thing, this calcified uh, mindset where there's only one way of looking at any issue. We, we have to be willing to talk to each other and listen to each other. Well, and what's scary now is technology is a wonderful thing. But it also perpetuates what you just said, right? So if you go on social media and you like either, you know, either political party or a certain candidate or you shop at this certain store or watch this certain TV channel, now everything else you see advertisement wise is funneled to be just like that. So we're not even exposing ourselves to, you know, thoughts that run in the opposite direction of ours. We just surround ourselves in our own comfortable little circle of what we believe and not exposing ourselves to different ideas that could change the way we see things. We just like double down on that one thing, which isn't always a good thing. Absolutely. And in fact, it may even be worse than that. Uh, I've been told that the, the way the YouTube algorithm is set up, that all of the suggested videos on the, on the right-hand side of the screen are, are designed to be just a little bit more edgy than what the previous one was. So if you, if you, if you go through that, that, that reel as it, as it keeps repopulating, you get pushed farther and farther to the extremes, whichever extreme you're on. So if you're on the, on the left, you get pushed farther left. If you're on the right, you get pushed farther right. The, the assumption is people want something edgy. They want something provocative. They want something that, that is, is not exactly the same. And, and so we've actually designed a system that is adding to the polarization of, of our society. And there, there has to be a certain amount of, of willpower, of determination, of, of conviction that you know, I, I tell my, my, my friends that I, I watch Fox News and I listen to NPR. And so my, my uh, liberal friends say, how can you watch Fox News? My conservative friends say, how can you listen to NPR? <laughs> uh, because that's at least I can at least get a both sides and I can try to figure out that the truth is usually somewhere in the middle. Right. But if I'm just listening to people who are going to tell me how to think and I never hear the other side of the issue, then uh, I'm really sharing in the complicity of why I don't have a healthy worldview. Absolutely. Another thing I saw on your website, and it's in the foot of your email, is that you're a uh, you, know, you have three thousand years experience, which obviously is, <laughs> is 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 has to launch into a question, which I'm sure you designed it that way. But I, I know I'm younger than I look. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, or maybe I'm older than I look. And reading what you have out there, that, that comes from studying ancient texts and and things like that. So I'm just curious in your schooling and what you studied. Is this a new thing, or is this? Are we just repeating the cycle of everything we're talking about right now, and it's it's been played out over thousands of years? Well, I, I specifically make that reference in um, in connection with King Solomon, who uh, who ago. And uh, if you go through my articles, you'll find that I I frequently quote King Solomon. Uh, he um, he said, "There's nothing new under the sun." And if you ask uh, historians. They will tell you the same types of things happen over and over again. I think Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. <laughs> you know, there was, you, could see, you could see the same patterns. You could see the same. I mean, in many ways, uh, I'm not the first one to, to, uh, to observe this, but in many ways, we're living in the Roman Empire. 
I mean, the, the Roman nobility, they kept the people, they kept the citizens happy with bread and circuses. They gave them food, they gave them entertainment, and, uh, and then the citizens looked the other way with the excesses uh, of their government that eventually caused the entire empire to collapse. The answers to our problems have been addressed. Uh, the nature of uh, the human mind has been addressed. The, the difficulty with, uh, with King Solomon's Proverbs is that his language is a 3,000-year-old language. Sure. And so uh, in one of my books, what I try to do is to take excerpts from the book of Proverbs and demonstrate how we can see the wisdom of King Solomon manifest in, in our daily lives, whether it's through new he- news headlines or scientific discoveries or, um, or just uh, day-to-day living. Uh, there, there is so much uh, profound wisdom that we have available if we can, if we can tap it, if we can find a way of bringing it forward to see and recognize how it applies to the modern world. It's, uh, we, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Uh, that wisdom's been there for a long, long time. We just have to access it. Sure. So do you say that is your, your mission of sorts as you're a professional speaker now? Is that the main thing that you're trying to get across to people as you speak to new audiences? Well, I'm, I'm trying to take lessons that I think will be relevant to the audiences uh, to which I speak and demonstrate that just to just to show people that there is a more sophisticated way of looking at our problems. You can read a, an aphorism, you can read a, a soundbite, and it sounds very simple. It sounds very, uh, sometimes even cliche. But, you know, cliches get to be cliches because they're worth repeating. And, and the problem is that once they become cliches, that we've heard them so many times, they lose their impact. So we have to go back and we have to freshen them up. We have to change something so that it sounds fresh, even though the idea is the same idea that has been applicable to human nature for thousands of years. Yeah. And I'm thinking about what you said earlier about how when you, you know, when you're in Israel and you're 24 and you thought you knew everything and then you realize you didn't, I guess in some ways as society, we're just perpetually that 24 year old, you know, it, it goes in cycles until the next 24 year old who says, ah, I don't know how to deal with the way they did it or ah, they were, I know it. Don't, I'm not going to worry about what they told me. And then we end up making the same sort of mistakes, just, you know, with a new rhyme, like Mark Twain would say. Yeah. I mean, think about if you, the last time you watched a political debate on, on any, in any forum, on any subject, when's the last time you heard somebody say, you know what, that's an interesting point. I hadn't actually thought of it that way. <laughs> I can't think of it. Yeah. I mean, no, I mean, you can't say that because it, it's not really debate. It's, it's gladiatorial battle. Um, you know the gladiator. The gladiators of today are are the the football players and the and the uh, you know, what is it the mixed martial arts and the, and the World Wrestling Federation. But but it's also the pundits. They they get on. They go on. They've got to fill up all that airtime. And you can't look weak. You can't look like you you have nothing to say. You can't look like maybe the other person got the better of you. Uh, you just have to keep asserting your point of view. And so we end up with people basically yelling at each other um, with very little that, that qualifies as substantive discussion. It's, uh, it's one of the opportunities that we actually do have on YouTube. If we're selective about what we watch, uh, you can find things on YouTube where people are actually having substantive discussions. There's this fellow, I don't know exactly how to pronounce his name, but his, uh, he's very popular. He has some very interesting uh, guests 
and they're you know they're very interesting conversations. You can find you can find people that are worth listening to if if you make the effort. Right. Uh, otherwise, uh, and, you know, so it's like your it's like your diet. You can eat healthy food. You can eat junk food. Healthy food is more complicated. You have to prepare it. You have to go to the right stores. You have to you have to, it takes more effort. Often costs more. Junk food's a lot easier, but ultimately it's not good for you. And it's the same thing with entertainment. Yeah. That's a great example. It is. <clears throat> and what's interesting, too, about you say the pundits, right? And now you got me thinking about the Roman Empire and gladiators and that movie Gladiator. When at one point he just like, are you not entertained? Right. Um, <laughs> but that's like us. Right. Are we not entertained all the time? We have to be entertained. We're glued to our phones. We're glued to social media. What did Donald Trump say now on Twitter? What are they saying on Fox News? It's like we are we're, we're like creating this cycle where they have to give us more to keep us entertained and then it just gets more and more outlandish and strays farther from the facts and it's just the sound bites and headlines and oh i can't, I can't even i don't even have tv anymore because i can't watch it it just drives me crazy no good for you <laughs> yeah i and it's so seductive because it's so easy i mean I, I realized a little while ago that i just i just wasn't reading anymore i mean i've got a degree in english i mean <laughs> sure and, and i i've I've actually, I actually scheduled at the end of the evening, I turn off my computer, turn off my phone and I, and I open a book and I, and I forced myself to do it for, for weeks until I actually formed the habit again of reading, which is something I love to do, Right. but I wasn't doing it because it just you know, wasn't as, as immediately gratifying as all this other stuff that's out there. So even if we know better, we can find ourselves sucked into this type of stuff. Sure. So what's a, what's a good book you've read lately? Uh, I am reading a book called um, Team of Rivals. It's about Abraham Lincoln. Oh, no, I actually read that last year. Did you? Yeah. It's, it's, it's really wonderful. And, and, I, and I read it because, it, or I picked it because it, it really lends itself to this whole conversation we're having that when Lincoln won the nomination, he invited his Republican adversaries not only to support him, but he brought them, when he won the election, he brought them on, into his cabinet. Yeah. Talk and, about, hey, and that's an interesting the, thought. I didn't think about that, right? The yeah. Then we have the debate. He literally did that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, if you, it's very easy to find people who are going to tell you exactly what you want to hear. And this is, this is a lesson for, for business people. It's a lesson for people in education. It's a lesson for people in, in any walk of life. If you surround your people, yourself with people who tell you what you want to hear, then what happens when you're wrong? I mean, how many... Uh, you know, this this is the group thing. You know, this is what happened with the with the space shuttle, the Challenger space shuttle disaster, um, with the 2008 uh, you know economic meltdown. You know, there were people who were saying, "Hey, <laughs> there's a problem here," and nobody wanted to listen, so they just shut them up. And if you go back in time, you can find plenty of other examples of this in history. Uh, but to to make a conscious decision, I want to bring people into my camp who I know think differently from me, because then. I can be exposed to other points of view, ideas that I haven't thought of. If, if you tell me something I don't want to hear or that goes against my view, I can I can choose not to listen to you. But at least I have a choice then. At least I have the option. Whereas if I don't allow myself to hear any dissenting points of view, then I'm really working in the dark. Right. Yeah, I really enjoyed that book. I, I, you know, it's like what the, what the textbooks tell you about Lincoln, right? And then some of these these deeper biographies about him or, or things that are about his cabinet, like Team of Rivals, that he, he's... Definitely a fascinating historical figure, for sure. Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah, and uh, you know, that's one of the things that makes a great leader is somebody who is willing to surround himself with people who will challenge him, who will give him opposing points of view, and, and is willing to listen to them and take them seriously and then make his evaluations. 
Sure. Absolutely. I want to, I want to dive back to the whole traveling thing for a minute because I've, I've interviewed a few people now and I have a few people in my life personally that are doing a little bit of the modern day version, I think of what you did, where there's this whole movement of, you know, buying, well, it's not a new movement, but you know, buying the van and building it out to be a, a semi house and traveling the country and, you can be a you know a nomad worker now as long as you have an internet connection. You can still work while you're traveling and have a high paying job, but just be anywhere in the country. Or you know, people a lot of people in their 20s are, are are doing this, and I think people have always done it. To your point, you you talked about it being the 80s. It's just you didn't have Facebook to document your trip and tell everybody about it. You know, <laughs> and now we see that. Right. But so, what would be something if you reflect back on? your whole experience, the years you spent traveling and searching and having those life lessons, you know, somebody that's setting out on their version of that today, what's a piece of advice that you would impart on them? Um, try to get off the beaten track. Uh, the, the problem I had hitchhiking is that I couldn't stray very far from the main roads because if I go with somebody out in the middle of who knows where, uh, it might not be so simple to get back. Sure. So I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, the adventure I had was, was looking for the rides and the interactions I had in the, in the cars, which, which was itself kind of interesting. Uh, when you, when you uh, have two people in the, in a car, you've heard of the stranger on a, tra- strangers on a train principle. Um, the people will tell things to strangers they know they're never going to see again. And, and I got, uh, I got some interesting stories from, from people when I was traveling around and things as long as they tell me, you know, they never told these things to their parents, their, their children, their friends, their wives. So if you can find a way to get off the beaten track, that's where you really see things. And the same thing happened to me in Europe that I bought one of these uh, rail passes. And the problem with the rail pass is that you feel like every day I'm not on the train, I'm losing money because I paid for this pass. And so I always felt this need to keep moving, even when I probably would have gained more by staying in one place and just getting to know the people in that place or, or savoring like your, your, your title, relish the journey. Um, sometimes the way you relish the journey is by savoring the journey, Absolutely. which means that I'm I'm not in a hurry to get to the next place because I'm still learning and growing and experiencing where I am. And the fact that my itinerary says I should be somewhere else. So, okay, let the itinerary go for now. But if we, if we slow down, if we look in the unexpected places, it's fine to see the Eiffel Tower. It's fine to see Mount Rushmore. It's fine to see the, the, the mall and the Smithsonian uh, and Big Ben. But you've really got to get in. You've got to meet the people. Um, one of one of the most memorable experiences I had when I was in, in uh, I went to Belfast, Ireland, and it was at the tail end of what they called the Troubles, the you know the, the, the fighting between the IRA and the British, and uh, and I, I specifically went into the worst neighborhood. I was 24 and not as smart as I am now, um, <laughs> and I went into a bar and I ended up picking up a, a striking up a conversation with these two guys sitting at the bar, and, and it was just fascinating to get a, a ground view of um, of what it's like to live in what we would think of as a war zone. Uh, and if I would have just gone to the you know, tourist spots, uh, I never would have had that experience. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I've been to Europe once. My sister-in-law got married in Italy, and we, we spent a lot of time in the, um, the Tuscany region. And it was the, the greatest thing ever was going to leave Italy and being told my flight was canceled. And I had to spend the day, had to, you know, oh, poor me, spend the day in Rome on the way out. Uh And so it was neat. And we didn't expect it, right? So we didn't have that itinerary you talked about. We only had a few hours. So it wasn't like we'd be able to go and do all the touristy stuff. So my wife and I just 
did what you said. We just wandered, walked the side streets, went into the local sandwich shop, struck up conversations. And it was one of my favorite parts of the trip was just, you know, put the camera down. Don't be the quote unquote tourist and just really take it in. And it's, it's awesome when you do that. It's so I agree from firsthand experience. It's the, it's the best way to travel. Yeah. And if you ask people who've traveled, what's, what's the best thing that happened to them? Often the story will be something that was spontaneous. It was unexpected. Our, you know, our plans didn't actually work out. So we ended up doing something we hadn't thought we were going to do. And that turned out to be our best day. Right. So, you know, it's, it's important to see the big sites, but usually you're going to get more out of uh, just sort of letting, <laughs> letting the current take you where it takes you. Right. Well, you mentioned the name of the show is Relish the Journey. My, my subtitle is Life in Three Words. So we've talked a lot about your life and your journey and, and some of the adventures you've had, but how would you sum that up in three words? Three words. Oh, my goodness. I should have read the subtitle more carefully. <laughs> um, hmm, my goodness. Three words. It could, be, it could be a phrase that's three words or individual words. I've had people do either. Yeah, yeah that might be easier. Um, I would say... Um, Curiosity, integrity, and courage. It's a great three. We have, yeah, you know, we have to be willing to 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 look past what's all what we already know, what's comfortable. And integrity is more than honesty. It's uh, it's really living. It's living your values. Right. It's when no one's watching. And, yeah. And courage means doing what's hard, doing what's scary, and challenging ourselves. Sure. Yeah, we could take that back to the beginning, right? It's leaning into that that headwind, and keep going forward. That's right. That's right. Very good. Well, I've sincerely enjoyed this conversation. I feel like I could keep going for four hours, but I don't think anyone <laughs> would listen to that long of a podcast. So, well, uh, certainly not these days. Yeah, but before we, you know, before we we end it, is there anything else that you want to want to say and a message that you want to you want to get out? Um. Well, maybe I'll maybe I'll leave you with the way I, with the way I ended my uh, my TED talk. All right. Um. I, I asked the audience. Um, I suggested to the audience that we should all ask ourselves, where do we get our beliefs? Where do our values come from? Did we choose them or did they choose us? Because very often we absorb our way of thinking from the people around us, which is natural. Whether it's our parents, our teachers, our peers, the news media, or the entertainment industry. But if we actually make the effort to reason our way through we might discover that the, the values and the beliefs that we hold, we're, we're not quite sure how we got there. And we may not be sure that we can defend them. And that's one of the things that makes us defensive and that makes us um, avoid people who think differently because we don't have the, we're not secure in our own beliefs. And so that, uh, I guess, goes back to the curiosity, the integrity, and the courage. Yeah, very well said. So if people liked what they heard here and, and want more of what you have to say, where can they find you? online for some more information? Well, they can spell my name, Jonas and Goldson. Uh, that is my website. And, uh, and it will also, you can also get there through my, my business name, which is Ethical Imperatives. And I have, uh, I have articles, I have books, I have videos, and, um, and people can find my contact information there. Always, always happy to continue the conversation. Yeah. And well, I'll make sure I link up to everything too. So we make it easy. Thank you again so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Uh, enjoy the conversation. Keep up the good work. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Relish the Journey with Jonasen Goldson. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm just 
inspired after talking to this guy. Hopefully you are after listening to his stories. Very thoughtful individual, and it's just, ah, man, just amazing some of the things he's done. So I hope you enjoyed. And for more, be sure you check out the links in the episode notes to support Jonasson, and, and hopefully he challenged you to think about your life in a different way and go have your own neat experience and, and look at the world through a different, you know, different lens. So until next time, everybody, cheers.